We must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, F. Scott Field, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Brandon Pone. We have a special guest today uh, who specializes with amputees. Kosi uh, Beloso is a physical therapist working in Tampa, Florida. Kosi, uh, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about your background into who you are and what's led you to where you are today? Sure. So uh, I've been a therapist now. It's going to be 16 years. December is like my little anniversary date for getting my license in in my hand back before we had computerized licenses that told you right away. So anyways, therapist for 16 years. Um, I've been there, done that in almost every setting and specialty in physical therapy. So I've worked from trauma ICU units to the home health, outpatient, inpatient rehab, SNF unit. I mean, you name it, I've been there and pretty much all the different specialties. Um, that are out there. Um, but my passion is, is definitely working for the amputee population. Um, and just recently in January of this year, I opened up my own private practice uh, that is exclusively for amputees in the outpatient setting. Uh, so I've been really, really excited about that. That is awesome. And we'll dive into that a little bit later. But first and foremost, you kind of mentioned in your bio there that, you know, you had gone through all these different specialties within therapy over 16 years. So I'm curious for, and probably the listeners are as well, what specifically, whether it's one event or a cascade of events, kind of sparked that passion and really led to your full devotion to treating people with amputations? So basically, I, 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 I go back to just my roots and my education. Um, I'm a graduate of Florida International University, FIU. Um, and one thing our clinical instructors really stressed on, on us is getting a well-rounded education. So when it came to my clinicals, um, I really farmed myself out to as many different diverse populations as I could. Uh, and when I graduated, I got a job with Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami, which is just this ginormous county hospital um, that has everything in it. And they required the physical therapist to rotate every six months to a new rotation. Like there was no exception and you couldn't repeat the rotation. So you were forced to learn about everything. And we have amazing senior therapists there that they love to teach the newbies coming in. And I was definitely one of those, like I just would latch onto the senior PT and, and suck them dry for every information that they had. So I would start a new rotation. I would be scared not knowing what I was doing. I'm like, ah, and then get into it. I'd be like, oh my gosh, I love this. I love this. I love this. I love this. And then boom, another rotation and just repeating that cycle. So, you know, actually in the beginning of my career, it was actually burn trauma and amputee and wound care and spinal cord injury. Those were big ones for me. 
um, because I had such amazing mentors there. Um, but definitely uh, amputee outpatients stuck out a lot more um, and by dumb luck, because for whatever reason, the PTs that I worked with did not want to do amputee outpatient. So since I was the rookie, that's the rotation I got put on a lot more. Um, my senior therapist, Curtis Clark, he's kind of like the grandfather of amputee PT. Um, a lot of the books that he's been doing this since the seventies, you open up some of our textbooks and his name's going to be there, um, right next to Bob Gailey's name. Uh, and, and his passion for working with the amputee population is just, it just overbounds and he loves to teach, which for me, whenever you find someone who wants to teach you what they're passionate about, it's hard not to get excited about that. Um, and we had just amazing cases and patients and, and in cases, again, dumb luck where even Curtis would say, I've never seen this in my career and this is coming into you. And, and then, so, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, Kosi, what are some of the pros and cons of working in the amputation population? So I would say the biggest con right now is um, education. Uh, there is not hardly any continuing education as for clinicians out there after you finish school um, for and then, I'm sensing a, an opportunity here, Cozy. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm, I'm, it's, it's on my, uh, it's on my, it's on my plan. Um, but also, awesome. just among the amputee community itself, there's so many of them out there that they don't know what physical therapy is, much less what it is that we do. They go, they get their prosthetic leg, and they're go, told, to, yeah, yeah, go home and practice a little bit, or here, walk up and down the parallel bars a little bit, and you'll kind of get used to it. You know, and that, that was probably my biggest surprise when I started um, going on Facebook and just going to the support groups and seeing, you know, what are these folks talking about? And many of them did not know. And unfortunately, some of them that did have physical therapy, it was not with a specialist. So they weren't able to reach their max potential with their prosthesis. Um, so that's kind of one of my biggest soapboxes <laughs> um, that I'm trying to address uh, with my clinic and, and with my live feed show on Facebook. Well, I really like that. And, you know, kind of taking that to another level, because recognizing that there might be students or clinicians out there that are listening that are like, you know, I, I'm interested in amputating and treating that population a little bit more, um, but I don't know the courses or anything like that that's like an option. Um, would you mind just sharing a little bit of some of the options that currently do exist for clinicians that want to consider something like that? Yeah, unfortunately, it won't take me long to tell you about them because there's not that many. Um, to me, I always tell a PT student or anybody interested is find the specialist in your area, beat the bushes, find out who treats amputees and just try to, to learn from them firsthand. Um, in Florida, in, in Orlando, we have Osher, which is a huge manufacturing company, right? And they're huge in the prosthetic world. So they put out mainly, I'd say 95% of their courses are for prosthetists. And maybe they have one course a year, a couple of courses a year for PTs. Um, which is a good course. I've taken that course. It's a nice course. Um, but there's really not a lot out there. There's an organization called OPATH, actually, and I was approached by OPATH. Um, they're an organization that provide opportunities for amputees and folks with disabilities to try out new sports um, as beginners. So they're, they're in the process of creating um, coursework for physical therapists because they're seeing that need. Um, but usually my, my biggest advice is go find that PT, whether they live an hour or two hours away, but go find that person who has that experience and just start trying to learn from them. 
Wow. And then that's really interesting just to hear the level that exists within that community because that's just something I was frequently not aware of. And, you know, I'm sure, Kosi, that you see this all the time, of course, especially with um, treating patients primarily that have amputations. Um, you know, realizing, of course, in school, learning that there, there can be prosthetic limitations, but also anatomic limitations that are currently that can be presenting with a particular patient. So from your perspective, what are the most common prosthetic and anatomical abnormalities that are commonly seen with um, patients that have a baloney or an above knee amputation? So the biggest ones that come right off the bat um, from an anatomical standpoint is how the scar line has healed. Um, everybody heals a little bit differently and there's a lot of soft tissue that has to be managed and depending on the surgical technique that was used will determine how that limb is shaping up. So one of the common things is I'll see um, crevices or what we call invaginations in the skin. Uh, we might see dog ears at the end um, that have to be addressed sometimes. Um, a lot of the swelling. I'd say that's probably one of the biggest ones I'm, I'm getting right now with patients asking me questions is how do they manage not just the post-op, immediate post-op swelling, but the swelling that, that is present throughout that first year to year and a half after amputation. Um, so after amputation, you know, they have that post-op swelling, but then the tissues are remodeling and continue to remodel, as we all know, for months later. Um, and that's a very frustrating thing for, for uh, prosthetist PTs and patients alike, because as you put the leg on, the leg keeps shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, and you have to keep making adjustments and accommodations. Uh, so that's probably one of the biggest anatomical um, issues that we deal with with amputees. Um, from a prosthetic standpoint, the biggest one that I see is just height adjustment, which thankfully is also the easiest thing to fix. So patient comes into my clinic and the first thing I do is I stand them in front of me and then jam my fingers into their iliac crest to see, you know, are they even or not um, and start from there. Um, and also sometimes some prosthetists might set the foot out in external rotation to give the patient a little more stability. Uh, so those are probably the two most common ones I see from a prosthetic standpoint. That's interesting. Cool. And, you know, Kosi, just because you had mentioned earlier with the swelling, because mm -hmm. I would assume that not all people that have an amputation are the most healthy from time to time. I would assume that's probably a lot of people that are either in the service that have had an injury or maybe have had some other systemic conditions that have led to this. Maybe one example being diabetes, and I'm sure the list goes on and on, as you probably know this way better than I do. Um, but, you know, how does that management of that because obviously that swelling is probably a little bit different than immediate acute post-op swelling. So besides the shrinker and what you kind of mentioned, are there any other ways that you guys or that you'd recommend helping to deal with that persistent swelling component? And I realized that it's going to vary on what's the cause of that swelling. Mm -hmm. um, but what are just your advice for that? No, and you're absolutely right. 90% of amputations are actually due to diabetes, peripheral vascular disease. Only 10%, and this includes our veterans, are due to traumatic amputations. And I think less than 1% is due to, to cancer-related amputations. So yes, the 90% of my patients coming into my clinic have all these comorbidities and unfortunately not great lifestyle habits that may have led to this amputation. So you're absolutely right. A lot of the swelling is due to sometimes the underlying comorbidity, whether it's due to diabetes or congestive heart failure or autoimmune disease is another big one. So it's teaching the patient how to manage their changing limb volume. And it could be that after six to nine months, the patient is still having volume changes. And at that point, you realize that's not due anymore to the 
the actual surgery itself. It's just that is their baseline. And you have to teach them how to understand their baseline. So obviously with congestive heart failure patients, they are already aware to watch their, their weight fluctuations on a day-to-day basis. Three to five pounds is usually that range. So we teach them sock management with that. Um, so most amputees, they learn that when they first wake up in the morning, their limb is going to be larger and they may not need socks. And they know that as their day goes on, they have to kind of constantly reevaluate their fit and adjust their socks accordingly. Um, and this is something that's incredibly frustrating for them because many of them don't realize this is just part of the new normal for them. Um, but once they start to understand how to manage their socks and how it's supposed to feel when that leg fits right, you see the light bulbs going off and they gain much more confidence with it. Um, but yes, it, you know, understanding what their underlying more uh, comorbidities are is definitely a huge component. And also, how are they with their medication compliance? You know, are they taking their diuretics? Are they really measuring their sugar well every day? Um, and that, so that's something, you know, and, and for me as a PT that I worked in all the other arenas of physical therapy, that helps me a lot with the management of the amputee patient, the medical management. Interesting. Well, Kosi, what are the most important things for a newer clinician to know when it comes to treating people with amputations? Lots of education. And this is something for me across the board with all of my patients. I think one of my strongest um, assets as a physical therapist is I educate my patients to the nth degree. I think the more you explain things to patients, the more compliant they will be with treatment because amputees, unfortunately, sometimes have a tendency to be non-compliant. And many times it's due to the fact that they don't understand the why behind what we're doing. And it's not because they don't want to get better. It's just they don't understand the why and the importance behind it. So I find that the more I educate my patients, the more compliant they are, the more successful they are, and the more confident they are in using their prosthesis and also their confidence in trusting you as a therapist to know that what you're telling them to do, that they really need to do it. Um, And I think with newer physical therapists, that was probably... Um, one of the biggest lessons I had to learn as a novice PT. I graduated school and I was so busy worrying about what I didn't know from a clinical standpoint that I forgot to focus on what I did know and how I could teach my patients that. Um, So I think once I got into that groove of of really just educating my patients, everything else would just fall into place. Yeah, that's a huge point, Kosi. And I think realistically, it's good for especially newer clinicians to realize how much education we actually do in the clinic, you know, and how important that is, you know, it's education isn't just for academia that, you know, we we preach that on this show over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. but we're all educators. I mean, we really are at the end of the day, a good portion of our job is educating. Yep. Uh, So great point. Yeah. I'd say in my evals, when my patients come in, I spend easily an hour one-on-one with my patients for their evals. And I'd say 45 minutes of that is spent, educating my patient on skincare, on sock management, on their shrinker, on how to don and doff their prosthesis, education, 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 education. And that way, when they come in for their follow-up appointments, we've already got a nice foundation set um, and it really helps with their progress. So taking that extra time, which it does, it takes extra time 
pays off in the long run. You know, Kosi, I realize that this next question is going to vary a little bit based on the presentation, comorbidities, and a lot of other factors. But for, you know, for myself, my first, my, my, my first job, I saw a couple amputations, not a lot, but I saw three. And wow. in that time, I was like, holy smokes, there are some little things here that I had no idea what to do initially. Mm-hmm. Um, so you touched on one of them earlier, which is the, how to fit and do the socks, like how to get that optimally. Um, <laughs> what would you recommend? So some other things that at least I found that were difficult, just to kind of give newer clinicians some clarity on, on this, or what are some signs that a, it's a real, the, the prosthetic is a really solid fit and that that's showing good. Um, and then also kind of like your post-assessment assessment of the limb, like making sure it's got good response, like no um, abnormal redness or anything like that, or any other things that kind of the more, of the, I guess it's more of the technical aspect of it, but the stuff that you kind of learned on initially that was like, whoa. Hey, you've done your homework, Brandon. Um, well, I just messed up a few times, so that was really it. <laughs> That's how you learn though, right? Um, So what I do with a patient, first of all, when I have a new patient coming in, I talk to their prosthetist. Again, communication, communication, communication. The prosthetist is, this is how I state it, they build the car, we teach the patient how to drive it. So the prosthetist is going to know all the ins and outs better than I ever will. So usually I'll get a cheat sheet and just say, hey, what are you seeing with this patient? Not only what kind of a leg, what kind of a sock, but what are the discrepancies that are unique to this patient that you are already seeing that I should keep an eye out for when they come in? And prosthetists love that because we can give them that feedback and just help with tweaking and alignment and all that kind of good stuff. So when the patient comes in, I'll take a look at their skin. It's all about the skin. You know, do they have that fragile pink skin that if you look at it the wrong way, a blister pops up? Or do they have that nice, um, I know I'm, I'm terrible, that nice 20-year-old rubbery skin that you can just do whatever you want to and it just keeps going on? If I have someone with particularly sensitive skin, I'll put on the liner, the socks, the socket as the prosthetist did already, and I'll start there. And then I have the patient stand up in the parallel bars and I start my stopwatch. And usually if it's somebody that I'm really nervous about, three minutes. So from the time that everything gets put onto the patient, stopwatch begins for two to three minutes. And I'll have them do very simple weight shifting, not taking any steps, just weight shifting in the parallel bars and teaching, you know, checking their height, taking advantage of that situation. And then I ask them, how do you feel? patient in the beginning, they're going to be like, ah, it feels uncomfortable. It feels weird. It feels, you know, and that's normal. What I'm looking for is, is there any pain anywhere? Do they feel like they're bottoming out that the bottom of their stump is hitting the bottom of that prosthesis, which is what we do not want in any occasion. So those are the two big things, pain and bottoming out. After the two minutes are up, I sit them down and I have them take everything off. And this can take a while because sometimes these prosthetic devices are a little complicated and to get them on properly is an issue, but it's well worth doing this. And at this point, I look at the skin. I see what's going on. I usually will see some pinkness and maybe a little bit of redness, um, but usually there's certain areas that I look for to see where I'm expecting to see pinkness and redness. And at the same time, I'm teaching the patient this, and I'm letting them know this is where you expect to see pink, this is where you're not expected to see pink or red. If anything pops up, like if I do see a big old red spot where it shouldn't be, then I start the clock again and just see, okay, how long does it take for that redness to subside? If the redness subsides within about three to four minutes, then we start the process all over again. We put everything back on, and at this point, I might have them take a couple of steps. 
if the redness does not subside, okay, then at that point, I might call the prosthetist and say, you know what, we got this red spot here, it's not subsiding, we're gonna keep an eye on it, but this might be an area that might need to be adjusted and just start keeping that in the back of our minds. So redness subsides, they put everything back on and I have them walk. Usually the classic sign that they don't have enough socks on is they'll start pistoning. So they'll start kind of going up and down and the patient will start to say, it doesn't feel snug, it doesn't feel secure, or the opposite. They might say, it feels like I'm being squeezed like a sausage casing. And that's kind of how you go from there. Sock management to me is more of a fine art than science. <laughs> you have to go by feel. So you adjust the socks, and I usually do one ply at a time. I'll either take one ply off at a time or put one ply on at a time just to get that perfect fit. Once I feel like the patient has the perfect fit, meaning I can see them walking up and down the parallel bars and I'm not seeing any gait deviations of pistoning, of swinging out the leg, anything huge, and I tell them, this is what it should feel like. And that's kind of the aha moment for the patient. Once I see clinically that they're fitting well in their leg, I tell them, this is what it should feel like. So they can just start to learn, okay, this is what it feels like when my leg feels correct. And then teaching them, this is what you need to get to every day. And don't settle for anything less than this comfort level in your socket. Um, and it changes. It changes literally sometimes 30 minutes. I'm working with a patient of parallel bars in 30 minutes. And their socket starts getting loose again. So we have to add socks. And it's, it's, again, it's just teaching your patient constant education. And as a physical therapist, like I said, I've been doing this for 16 years. And when a patient walks in, I have no idea what they're going to present with. I have to go by these little feel signs <laughs> as they're walking. Um, and I have some patients who present very strangely that they'll be walking beautifully one day. They'll come to me the next day and they're completely wonky and they're an experienced patient. And they just finally, wait a second, let's add a sock. Let's just see what happens there. And it fixes the problem. So it's, it's a lot of guess and check. Um, and again, stressing, I can't stress enough the importance of letting your patient know that this is a guess and check process um, and that eventually they'll be experts. And that's my goal is by the time my patients leave my clinic, they're going to know how to manage their socks better than I do. And they're going to be the ones telling me what they need. I think that's a really, really good take, Kosi. And I think that definitely helps clarify a lot of things because I'm like, oh man, I wish I knew that role when I was first starting yeah. up. And so. you're scared as a clinician because you're like, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? And it's like, you're not doing anything wrong. It does right. take some guess and check in here. Yeah. Because I was like, how did they get it right all that time? I don't get mm -hmm. that. But then, you know, obviously talking a lot about, you know, the patient presentation, but also some of the technical aspects. And you mentioned some of the challenges with this population a little bit earlier, but what other parts of treating this population are really difficult that you don't think most other therapists are aware of? The um, well-rounded nature. And again, it goes back to my roots. An amputee patient is not just an amputee patient. And I say this a lot. Amputee patients, they're diabetics, CHF patients, pulmonary patients, cancer patients, trauma patients, burn patients, orthopedic patients. I had, I had oh my gosh, one of my, probably my most challenging cases was this beautiful 17-year-old girl who was in this horrific car accident. She came to me as an above knee on one side, above knee on both sides, bilateral above knee amputee. She had had a really poorly done burn graft on the anterior part of her hip. So she had a major hip flexion contracture. She had vertebral fractures. She had a mild TBI. 
She had her pelvis shattered, and unfortunately, the hospital she initially went to did not manage it well. So she was basically every case study I had ever done in school put into one patient. Um, so there were so many things we had to address before even getting to the amputee prosthetic training component of it. Um, and as we were training her, she amazing patient, amazing case. Um, you know, all these things I had to pull from my different training, including pediatrics, 17 year old pediatrics, you know, so I had to pull from my, you know, one year rotation I did as a, as a pediatric PT. Um, and I think that's the part that I think it, I think amputee scares a lot of PT sometimes because of all the prosthetic componentry and all that kind of stuff. But what many PT don't realize is if they have a good background in neuro, in orthopedic trauma, in the med surge units, they can use a lot of that knowledge to do a really amazing job with treating the amputee patient. Um, for me, honestly, like whenever I'm having problems with a gait analysis on some of my patients are like, what do I do? What do I do? I'll call one of my neuro colleagues because that's all they do all day, right? They do gait training with TBI, stroke patients. So they're the people I call. They've got some great tricks in their bag um, for how to do help with gait analysis and PNF with gait and all that kind of good stuff. Um, so that's probably what I would say for folks looking to go into amputee is expand your horizons and, and get that well-rounded education. Yeah, Kosi, you used a really good analogy earlier where the prosthetist makes the car, we teach them how to drive it. Well, what are some methods that you found to be most effective when teaching these patients, uh, specifically cueing uh, and, and, and tactile stuff for their movement and gait mechanics? A lot of it starts with proprioception. Um, and this has been a popular topic. I was doing, uh, you know, so I've been doing my live feed show and I would do an educational component series. And it got to a point where I ran out of stuff to talk about. So I was going through my books and I gave a talk on proprioception. That's probably the number one thing that if you ask an amputee, that's what bothers them the most. But obviously, they're not going to say proprioception. They say, I don't know where my foot is in space. I don't know when I kick out my leg in front of me where that foot is going to land or if it's going to land in the right place. So I start proprioceptive training from the minute they come into my clinic. Um, and I break things down. You know, the gait cycle, just to take one complete step cycle, there's so many components in there, two different phases and all that kind of, yeah, it's, it's a very complicated thing. Um, so I break it down into bite-sized pieces. Um, oftentimes people come in, they're like, but I was walking up and down the bars in my prosthetist clinic. Why aren't we doing that now? And I go, well, because you've got a lot of bad habits and it's a lot to process. Um, so I'm a big fan of the KISS rule, just keep it simple, stupid. So <laughs> former army brat. So that's what I do. I, I, I break it down and I start with weight shifting. And it's amazing just, just doing lateral weight shifting and teaching them how to square up and how to get a proper base of support, four to six inches, and just hammering that into them on that first day. Um, it, it, it's amazing what happens when they come in on the next session. So usually when people leave my clinic after the first treatment, they know how to do, how to square up, how to get a proper base of support. They know how to do basic lateral shifting and anterior forward and backward weight shifting as well. And I tell them, this is the only thing I want you to do at home. They're like, that's it. I go, that's it. And I know the ones who are compliant with it because when they come in the next day, they go, I feel more stable. I feel more steady. Like I feel more planted and connected to the ground. And they don't think it's the weight shifting because that's just a silly little exercise. What good is that going to, but that's exactly it and just breaking it down into these really simple exercises that are just effective. Building that habit 
and then repeating, 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 um, and giving that, that proprioceptive input to the residual limb in weight bearing. So, you know, it's a lot of things, but I guess if I had to really nail it down to what, what is it that I really do is I put people, I very rarely have people on a mat. I do a lot of closed chain standing activity, obviously standing activities in the parallel bars to start feeding that proprioceptive system and just bombarding it. And that's usually where I start to see more success and breaking it down into simple pieces. Yeah, no, I think that makes actually a lot of sense. I mean, the more we get a stable base and stable balance, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, wasn't that the phrase stability before mobility? Yep. Yep. And it's very simple. You know, I, I look, I, I kind of chuckle because I look back to the videos. If you go to YouTube, you'll find some videos from the seventies of physical therapists treating amputees. And I'm just like, yep, that's all the stuff I do. It's, it's not fancy. It's bread and butter PT, but it's effective. And if it's done well, and the patient is educated to the whys, it's unbelievably effective. And I, I chuckle because sometimes I'll get some PTs that, so what modalities and laser this? And I was like, I don't know about any of that stuff. I don't use it. <laughs> it's just very the basics, basics. Yeah, no, I like that. And, you know, obviously there's another aspect of this population that's probably unique that we haven't touched on earlier. And that of course would have to be phantom limb pain. What do we currently know about phantom limb pain, and if someone does have that, what are some guidelines that you'd recommend for managing this, whether this be like graded motor imagery techniques or mirror box or anything of that sort of matter? So unfortunately, we don't know too much more about it than we did 20, 30 years ago. Um, and the treatment techniques are, are very similar. So basically, when, I, when people ask me about that, the first thing I tell them is, is it truly phantom pain? You know, there's phantom pain, and then there's residual limb pain, and oftentimes they can get mixed up. And then there's also phantom sensation. So quick thing, residual limb pain is pain that is originating from the actual limb itself, the anatomical components that are still there in the soft tissues. Phantom pain is obviously when they are feeling pain in what used to be there. So if they have a pain in where their foot used to be, and it's a very real pain. Then phantom sensation, which I kind of call it like diet phantom pain, where it's not pain, but they just feel their foot where it used to be. Um, and this can be a huge problem, very debilitating in some patients. One thing I've noticed over the years is the sooner a patient starts using their prosthesis and the more they use their prosthesis and become acclimated to using it, a lot of that pain and sensation starts to decrease. It almost never goes away completely. You have amputees 30, 40 years out that are incredibly successful with their prosthetic devices and using them, um, but they still have residual sensation. Um, but I've noticed, especially the IPOP, the uh, immediate post-op prosthesis, which is something that I'm starting to see come back into the hospitals, which I really like, where they put on a temporary prosthesis immediately, immediately post-op, and the patient starts putting weight bearing onto that residual limb. So I think in giving, again, that proprioceptive input right back again, it kind of cues the brain to the new situation. So prosthetic use, and most of my patients, I honestly, I'd say 95% of my patients, the phantom pain is not debilitating towards them because of the fact that we are being so aggressive with getting them to use their prosthetic devices. Um, occasionally, I will have a patient come in, and again, differentiating between residual limb pain and phantom pain. Um, and then also, is it hypersensitivity? Some people sometimes get those two confused. They'll say, I'm having phantom pain and phantom pain. I'm like, 
I don't think it's phantom pain. You just, you put their hand on your hand on their skin and they just jump up to the roof. And I go, that's more of a hypersensitivity in which case desensitization techniques come into play and are very effective. Um, I've heard a lot of success with mirror box therapy, but what I do tend to hear is that while the person is using mirror box therapy, it's very helpful. But then the minute you take the mirror away, the pain comes back. So again, a lot of these are still in the guess and check stages. There's not a real hardcore science behind it. I do recommend it though. I mean, I think I find it to be effective if the person is very consistent with the mirror box therapy, as well as doing, um, you know, obviously the prosthetic aid training. Um, interestingly enough, I was at the VA yesterday and I got this tour of this amazing facility that they have and they've been doing, which is so cool, virtual reality. So they've been putting the patient's virtual reality in a pool. So the patients are in a treadmill underwater, which is so cool, with the virtual reality. So they're in a weightless environment that's supported, and they're being told how, kind of like a graded motor imagery, being told to move their residual limb while they're in this beautiful fall setting or whatever it is that they're seeing in their little virtual reality world. And they've had a lot of success with that, with uh, treatment of phantom pain. Um, but yeah, that's in the VA right now, so I'm trying to see how I can sneak in and get some of that equipment. <laughs> nice. Well, Kosi, what would you say are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned, whether it be physical therapy or business or life in general, um, with treating people with amputations since you've graduated from PT school? That's a big one. The overcoming the obstacles. Um, so I'm a breast cancer survivor, and I just hit my two-year survival mark. And I know from my own personal experience of being on the other side of that hospital bed, how much I valued my clinicians who took the time to specialize in my particular breast cancer and who took the time to really hone their craft, making sacrifices along the way. Because we all know as, as if you're in the medical health field, it's not just you, it's also your family that has to support you in this. Um, and coming out of that, it just really strengthened my resolve to be that clinician for someone else. Um, especially knowing that there's not a lot of amputee PTs out there. And I think one of the most rewarding things for me is when I have a patient come to my clinic who says, I've been trying to walk for years, nobody understands what I've been going through, and you're teaching me what I need to know. So just kind of being that person to give them that hope and to give them that confidence that they need to get through this part of their life uh, and be successful, that's probably one of the most rewarding parts of, my, of what I've been doing. Um, and just one of the biggest things that I've learned is be that person, be that, be that clinician that gives that patient that faith and that hope to get through what they're going through. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Kosi, are there any options to work with people with amputations outside of maybe working in a traditional PT clinic or hospital setting that could be lucrative this day and age? Um, I would say, you know, the amputee coalition is kind of the big, the big bad voodoo daddy of the amputee world. Um, they are, you know, the big organization that everybody knows about and they have a lot of programs. So usually I tell people go start there, you know, um, there's also things like the challenged athletes foundation. Um, and they do a lot of running clinics, a lot of sponsorship for folks with amputees. Um, and that's also a lot of fun. And there's a lot of just, you know, and also support groups, support groups are, I think I've spoken at six support groups in the past five months, just in my area alone. Um, for amputees. So I would say anybody who's interested in, in becoming involved with that population, just kind of start there um, and just start listening. What is it that these folks are saying? What is it that they need and how can we help them? 
Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, Kosi. And, you know, earlier on in the pre-show, we were kind of talking about kind of your practice and kind of your upcoming new big announcement that you're going to be doing. Um, for the listeners out there who are perhaps weren't at that pre-show, of course, which none of them were, would you mind sharing a little bit about kind of how, and I know you've kind of said this throughout the episode on how your clinic is unique. Um, so basically with my practice, it's, um, it's a private pay practice and it allows me a lot more freedom to give a very, a much higher level quality of care for my patient. Um, with amputees, it's one-on-one care. Uh, so that's definitely something I stick to religiously. Uh, and another component is my ability to travel to the prosthetist clinics, um, which in a private pay setting, I'm able to do that. So I'm able to go to the prosthetist clinics as they're getting fit with some of these test sockets and give my input on what I'm seeing in the gait pattern, um, which is always kind of cool because you, you prosthetist sees one thing, PT sees another, and then you know you get a better outcome that way. Um, what my pet project I've kind of been working on is my live show. So, and, and I told you this earlier, Brandon, I kind of stumbled onto this accidentally when I was doing kind of my market research, you know, what is it that amputees are saying in the community? What are, what are their needs? What do they want help with? So I joined many support groups on, on Facebook and, you know, realized just how little is known about what physical therapists can do for amputees and how much, they want to learn about what's going on with them, about sock management, about shrinkers, about, you know, all, all the stuff. So I started answering questions and that kind of um, spiraled into doing a live feed show twice a week on two support groups on Facebook. And it was basically, like I said, open season on the PT. Um, so it was just a live question and answer session. And every once in a while, I would throw in an educational topic, like why is core strength important while learning how to use your prosthesis or what is proprioception and why do we care? <laughs> so things like that. And I got a really amazing response from the community. I, I very pleasantly surprised. Um, and to not only just from the amputees themselves, but from some of their caregivers um, that were popping on board and just giving their input also every once in a while. So the audience has, has grown significantly in these two support groups. So starting tonight, I am moving the live feed to my Facebook business page, which is titled Cozy Talks, because I'm really original like that. So it'll be basically every Wednesday evening at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I'm just doing my live show where I do open question and answer session. And I'm hoping in doing it from my Facebook business page to open it up to all the support groups on event for amputees on Facebook and, and their caregivers and hopefully maybe an occasional clinician. Um, and it's my plan down the line to have uh, guest speakers come on. Um, so, for example, I, there's a, a certain wound care PT out there in our community that I'm going to approach to see if she can give us a talk. And there's a mental health nurse um, who's also an amputee that I'm going to have him come on board and give a talk on mental health after amputation. So, I, it's kind of fulfilling my little Rachel Ray, you know, bucket list dream of having my talk show. So. But that starts tonight at 8.30. Well, awesome. I love it, though. I mean, I think it truly serves a huge need. And like you had said, there are plenty of people, not even just patients, but their caregivers yeah. that really just want to know this information. And it's kind of scary because earlier you had said there's not a lot for even clinicians mm -hmm. to go for that route. So it makes sense that there's not obviously there's a lot that patients don't know about that either. So I think this is a tremendous step in the right direction. And I, my hope is that other people out there can listen to this episode and they're like, you know, amputations maybe don't, that's maybe not so scary. I'll look into this a little bit more because obviously it's a need. It's a, and it's a fascinating for me, just not only from the psychosocial standpoint of treating the amputee patient, but for me, it's, it's like a Rubik's cube. 
I love, it's, it's just the way it clicks. Um, just, just doing a gait analysis, everybody who comes in has a completely different gait pattern, completely different gait deviations, and just being able to just figure out what is going on with them and then straighten it out. It's just, it's, it's, it's cool. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> no, I believe, oh, I believe it. No, I believe it. And I think part of that also does come with experience too. Cause I think it's easy when you do it the first times initially, you're kind of like, Oh my God, I have no idea what I'm doing. No, it still happens now too. Still happens yeah. to me now too. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. I feel better now. <laughs> you know, Cozy, we usually wrap each episode with this final question. It's kind of our big cheese, if you will, because obviously the top, the focus of our podcast is on education. Um, mm -hmm. So the big question is, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, whether that be DPT or otherwise, mm -hmm. which aspect would you change and how would you change it? This is only going based on what I hear from PT students that I personally interact with. I don't know if this is an indicative of the PT education as a whole. Um, I'm seeing a lot of PTs that specialize right away. Um, coming right out of school or even within school. There, were, there was one PT who was joking around about how she got out of doing her inpatient rehab internship and she, out of her four internships, three of them were out, outpatient orthopedic. And she was chuckling because she thought she beat the system. And to me, I'm just like, I feel, I feel like that's a disservice to our physical therapists. I think one of the things that makes me a strong PT is that I've got the whole jack of all trades and now I'm specializing in this one thing. And what I said earlier about, you know, as an amputee patient, you're treating the neuro component, pediatric component, oncological component, and you draw upon all these different things to give your patient the best well-rounded care. But this can be said for other specialties as well. Your orthopedic trauma patient is also a cardiac patient, is also a traumatic brain injury patient. So I think in our educational system, I, if, if this is what is happening, I would like to see them make the students as well-rounded as possible and really get all the different settings, acute care ICU, inpatient rehab, home health, and outpatient, and really give the, the, the students a broad picture of this is what happens from the minute your patient walks into the ER or gets rolled into the ER until they're completely independent with whatever it is they're doing, regardless of the specialty. Um, and I tell this to students all the time, I'm like, don't be in a hurry you will get your chance to specialize. Don't be in a hurry to do it right away. Get your education, and especially those first five years, that is your time to really learn. Um, I love the fact that there are residency programs that are popping up because I just think it gives us that much more training. Um, but if I had to say one thing, I'd say, you know, the well-rounded well student, I think, is what really needs to be emphasized. Um, and it's interesting because whenever I, see, whenever I see a physical therapist, their name and their credentials, the people who have just PT behind their name, that they're from a couple of generations back where it was a bachelor's in PT, to me, they're the ones that have the best knowledge. And not just because of years of experience, but because back then, they really had to learn acute care, inpatient rehab, outpatient, and they had to get that well-rounded education. Um, so that would probably be my soapbox for education. Yeah, that's a great point, Kosi. you got to be a good generalist before you can be a, a good specialist. So, you know, we try to break down a lot of the silos between uh, other healthcare professions here on the show and, and let, you know, all the healthcare professionals know what each other is going through as far as schooling and education and stuff goes. But we really need to know about our own field as well. I mean, you know, an outpatient physical therapist needs to know what an inpatient physical therapist is going through. 
you know, and you need to see all these different phases and different uh, steps when it comes to physical therapy. So I think that's a great answer. Thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show today. Could you tell our audience where people can find you on social media and online? Do they have any follow-up questions or just want to reach out? Sounds good. They can find me on Facebook under Cosi Talks, C-O-S-I Talks, T-A-L-K-S. Um, and I'm in the process of building my websites right now, but one of them will be www.cositalks.com or my clinic website, which is www.palanca, P-A-L-A-N-C-A-P-T.com. We'll love it. Love it. And thank you again so much, Kosi, for your service and what you've done through the profession already. And thank you for spending the time with us this morning to share some really valuable insight to the listeners. We appreciate that so much. We wish you best of luck with your new projects and everything you got going on. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. It's a wonderful experience. Thank you. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.